Happy New Year, Space Jews. These are the days of awe, the ten holy days beginning the Jewish calendar that will culminate on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In this bonus episode, we're looking back at our conversation last February with Rabbi Steve Wernick of Beth Zedek Congregation in Toronto. We talk about Jewish ideas of wrongdoing, repentance, community, and of course, the Season 4 Voyager episode, Day of Honor. We'll be back with a regular episode in about three weeks, talking about TNG The Outcast, DS9, Facets, and Enterprise Cogenitor. But until then, I want to thank you for listening and wish you all a Gemar Chatima Tova. May you be inscribed in the Book of Life. My first memories of Star Trek were, you know, I was probably 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, watching the original series. This was right on the heels of space travel, of the United States landing on the moon. And then in the 70s, it just seemed like, you know, these notions of going beyond the moon into space were more realistic. And so this TV show that imagined trekking through the universe and meeting alien life forms and so forth, just even on the surface, right? The space exploration, its mission to go out and seek new life was just totally captivating as a young person. Uh, The uniforms were colorful. There was a lot of action, intrigue, conflict. But at its core, what I think I resonated most with Star Trek is what everybody does. And that is that Gene Roddenberry just had this incredible way of exploring contemporary issues through the lens uh, of this television show, um, issues of race, issues of war and peace, issues of uh, climate, of poverty, of food distribution and equality and, and so forth. I mean, all the things that were going on and were important in the world, this was a fantastic way to experience it. I think also my father's a rabbi. My mother was a Jewish educator. I was brought up in a very Jewish home filled with Jewish values and practice. And the themes of the show just also resonated with Jewish values and Jewish themes as we approach universal problems in the world. I think the strength of Judaism has been its ability to respond to the challenges of the time. 
embedded within the Jewish tradition itself is a constant reflection and reinvention of the application of values that we believe come from God, come from the divine. There are multiple levels of revelation of belief, from direct revelation to indirect revelation. I, as a conservative Jew, believe in an indirect revelation, that Torah is divinely inspired. And so therefore, there's more of a burden on human beings to figure out how to apply it to the world in which we live. But that's been the strength of Judaism for 4,000 years. I don't believe that we're done yet. Uh, so yes, I believe that there's Jews in the 23rd and 24th century. But just like the Talmud gives an example of Moses in the academy of Rabbi Akiva, who lived in the, in the first century of the Common Era, Moses is there and Rabbi Akiva's teaching, and Moses doesn't understand a single word Rabbi Akiva's saying. And one of the students finally says to him, Rabbi, how do you know this? And Rabbi Akiva says, because Moses received Torah from Sinai. And so like, ah, Moses is now, he's satisfied that the Torah that he received from Sinai is still relevant to the Beit Midrash, to the Academy of Rabbi Akiva, even though he doesn't understand what's going on. So I'm sure that if you and I were to go through a time warp, a black hole, and come out on the other side in the 23rd or 24th century, and we'd go and visit a synagogue or an academy or a holograph <laughs> um, where Jews would gather and experience Judaism in their time, most of that would be unfamiliar to us, but it would still be authentically Jewish because it would still be the reflection, reinvention, and reinterpretation of Jewish life for that century. It'd be fun to be able to do that. It occurs to me also that the story you mentioned of Moses in the back of Rabbi Akiva's academy, I wonder if the Talmud is, in addition to being the book of the Jewish oral tradition, also perhaps the first science fiction time travel adventure? It certainly has, in terms of its imagination, that story is exactly that. It, it begins with receiving Torah, and God's putting on the top of certain letters crowns, and Moses wants to know why the crowns. And God says, because Rabbi is going to derive meaning from that in the future. So Moses says, let me see that. And then the Talmud says that Moses simply turns around. So I have this image in my head of Moses turning around, and suddenly, you know, like, you know, some sort of through the guardian of forever. Through the guardian of forever or, or something, that's how he's there. That kind of imagination to set a story to teach a very important lesson, right? The Talmud's saying that what we're doing now is new. Um, Moses would not recognize it, but it is still authentic. The, the use of that device, I think, is really powerful. And so I think science fiction, in some ways, operates similarly. It's a way of creating a framework, a vision of the future, that is authentic because it's still based on universal human values. Yom Kippur is the Jewish Day of Atonement. It's a day of reflection for the entire Jewish community as individuals and as a community against the values that we profess to be elements of living to our best selves. The notion of vidui, uh, vidui is a, means confession, it comes from the Hebrew lehitva deya, which has an essence of being naked, in the sense of that what confession is supposed to do, it's supposed to make ourselves vulnerable. When we come and reflect upon um, who we really are and the areas in which we have not 
uh, lived up to our best selves, that's a vulnerability. So vidui, the notion of confession in Hebrew is about making yourself vulnerable. And teshuva is the way in which you respond to that vulnerability. It comes from the Hebrew word lashuv, which means to return. In Hebrew and Jewish language, we don't have a word for sin. So you have vidui, which is confession. You have chet, which means sin in the vernacular English. But the word chet comes from archery. It's missing the mark. Like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Where the arrow flies, once the arrow's gone... Once you release the arrow, it's going to land where it lands, and sometimes you miss the bullseye. The other concept of sin in Judaism is Avera, which is about a transgression, as I turn left when I should have turned right. I've made the wrong choices in my life, but I turn left when I should have turned right. Both of those concepts have the notion of directional in it, and if you've turned the wrong way or you've missed the arrow, you can always correct your path or try again. And so tshuva is the notion of return, of changing the direction that you're going and returning to the values that you aspire to live by in order to become your best self. And, and the notion of a community for the community to do that as well. So in this episode, uh, we see Seven of Nine, who's newly joined the crew, confronted by Bilana and asked if she feels remorse or guilt for the destruction of a people that they've encountered. When you hear about people like the Katati, do you have any feelings of remorse? No. That's it? Just no? What further answer do you require? Oh, maybe some kind of acknowledgement of the billions of lives you helped destroy? A justification for what you did? Maybe a little sense of guilt? Guilt is irrelevant. You know, knowing what we know about Star Trek, certainly we could make the case that an individual assimilated into the Borg collective has no personal responsibility for the actions of the collective. They're taken over, they lose all their agency, but they are part of a society that does wrong. And so how does Judaism and how does Yom Kippur think about wrongs that are committed not by the individual, but by the whole and by the community? Well, I think the point that you made about the episode is an important one. In the notion of the Borg, the person acts almost like a robot. And if there's no free will, then there can be no accountability because the person doesn't have a choice. From an ethical, moral perspective, if you don't have a choice, how can you be held accountable for whatever actions you make? What makes us human, of course, is that we do have a choice. We have choices as individuals in terms of the actions and behaviors and choices that we'll make. And we have a choice as a community as to which actions and behaviors we're going to allow and which we're going to keep in the margins or even punish when people transgress them. So the notion of Yom Kippur is specifically about the community. Individuals have to atone for themselves with other human beings. But the notion of Yom Kippur is that Yom Kippur only grants atonement for when people ask for forgiveness from God, and demonstrate a willingness to not repeat those errors against God. And the community comes together, and the whole language of the liturgy is in the plural. We have sinned. Forgive us for our sins. We have done this. We are mere mortal. We'll try to do better. So it's also, there's a public element of it, where the community puts peer pressure on people to reflect and to repent, uh, not only towards God, but towards each other. Communities that do that, um, communities that reflect, communities that hold 
the individuals as well as society accountable for its values and the implementation of those values are communities that tend to thrive and survive. That really is how honor, I think, is achieved. So throughout Voyager, Belana not usually into all this Klingon stuff. She sees it as hateful, unnecessarily ritualistic, superstitious. Archaic. Archaic, yeah. But on the Day of Honor, she feels this draw. Why do you think that Yom Kippur holds such a special place for so many Jews who otherwise may not engage in their Jewishness, but on Yom Kippur feel the need to? I think part of it is is that like we all know that we're imperfect and to come together as a community and reflect on our humanity and our frailty is a very powerful very powerful drive. I think it's also a lot of it's tradition. That's when their parents brought them. That's when their grandparents brought them. Families come together to be together. There's something about the Kol Nidre prayer in particular that is haunting to many people inspires them at that moment and hopefully throughout the year. That in the story of Franz Rosenzweig, who was a 19th century philosopher who wanted to go to university, and the only way that he could go was to convert to Catholicism, lived in Germany at the time. So he was on his way to convert, and he decided for whatever reason, and we know this from his diary, that he was going to go and attend one last Yom Kippur service before he left Judaism forever. Uh, he was brought up in a secular household. I mean, he wasn't particularly Jewish to begin with. We know that he went to shul on Kol Nidre evening, on Yom Kippur evening, and having left the service, wrote in his diary that he changed his mind. He was not going to convert. He was not going to go to university to study what he was going to study. Instead, he was going to become a Jewish philosopher, which he did, one of the most important ones in the 19th century. There is something really profound about Yom Kippur, about the community coming together, about the notion that we have the opportunity to be better than we were the day and the year before. That gives us hope, and that hope is really profound. In this episode, we see Bilana struggling with two conflicting sources of shame. On the one hand, she feels ashamed of, like you said, archaic traditions, and yet she also feels ashamed of not participating in them in the way that was expected of her. What's the path forward here? How do you think that secular Jews resolve this conflict between moving away from what they see as connected to the old, but also feeling tied back to it? Religion in general always has to struggle to be relevant. There's something about about an ancient ritual that is comforting in the sense of how long it's been around and how old it is, that it belongs to me as part of a particular people and so forth. But when the theology around that is archaic and it represents a value system that I can't reconcile with my life, then it just seems off-putting. It's like, why do this? So I think that the responsibility is a relational responsibility. Religious institutions have a responsibility to constantly be reflecting and reinventing and making relevant the ancient traditions so that the values that are timeless can be experienced through ancient as well as new rituals that represent a value system that's relevant to the modern person. Meaning science, you know, <laughs> I say this all the time, I don't believe in science. Science is not a belief. 
science is, is about observation and fact and things that you can prove over and over and over again. When we confuse science with belief, it belittles science. When we think that belief is science or history, it belittles science or history. As modern people who are brought up in liberal educational settings of science and mathematics and history and so forth, we have to recognize that as being truth as well. Religion is about moral truth, about ethical truth. It contains within it history and science as the ancients understood it and so forth, but it's not a book about science or history. So when we confuse those things and we allow extremists in those views to take hold, people who are otherwise secular and might be looking at religion, I mean, it all seems extreme. And if that's what religion is, and I don't want anything to do with it. At the same time, you don't know what a religious tradition is about until you experiment it. So I would encourage people who might be seeking to come in. Yeah, get the light.